0: Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the feed hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market.
1: Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas, and hopefully you're gearing up towards a happy new year. Um, I love the holidays, I love the Christmas season, I love this this week that we're in right now, but I can't lie, oh, it's exhausting. We've been running ragged with you know everybody's family festivities, you know, my wife and I are still relatively young so we still get together with um, with our with our cousins and you know our grandparents and aunts and uncles and stuff like that and you're just starting to mesh a lot of families together so you know we had two weeks ago we had um, uh, an entire weekend Friday night through uh, Monday night was family events Christmas events with her side of the family and then the, the the Christmas weekend, you know, Saturday, Sunday and Monday was Christmas events with my side of the family. And you just we're just running all over the, the Tri-County area and I I love it. I love my family. But with two young kids, it's just it gets exhausting. So uh, it kills me to say this. My my parents asked if I wanted to join them at our cabin this weekend for the New Year's. And I'm like, I just want to stay home. (laughs) I just want to stay home, clean the mess up that is my house because, man, there is stuff everywhere. Christmas gifts everywhere. Um, Just clutter. It just looks like a bomb went off in certain places of the house. So I think it'd be a good time to recharge the batteries, have some time off, and just try to get things back into working order here as quick as we can. And uh, I, they're not going to be any New Year's resolutions for me. I'm not a big fan of the New Year's resolution. Uh, I know the statistics always say that a lot of New Year's resolutions don't even make it through January, and most of them are done by February. Um, a lot of changes that you want to make, you don't have to make them because the calendar starts over. You can make those changes anytime, and I'm trying to work on those kind of things any day of the week, um, whether that's just what I'm eating on a day to what I'm putting in front of my, uh, in front of my eyes and, and trying to, uh, better myself as a, as a person, as a hunter, as a father, as a husband, and, uh, you know, whatever's going on in your life, I hope that, uh, I hope you're taking the time to, uh, do all the things that, keep your priorities in line you know I said my, my prayer that i'm i'm praying for is to keep my priorities in line or reevaluate and readjust and, and make sure my priorities are just kept where they need to be um, I, I feel like it's easy to get caught up in the chaos and just want to be doing everything for me when in reality there's just so much more and I'm rambling and i'm probably not making any sense but it's making sense in my head. I'm just fried. I'm just absolutely mentally fried. Physically, I'm fine. I mean, I could go and go and go, but mentally, I'm I'm ready for a break. Kids do that. Kids do that. But uh, good news. Let's shift gears. Good news. I was able to go out the opening day of late season flintlock muzzleloader. Took a couple shots with the gun the day before actually took a bunch of shots the day before, I, I put a different sight on, so I have a, a Lyman trade rifle. I purchased that gun brand new a few years ago. I'd, up until then I'd always been borrowing guns and then I had bought a used one and I didn't really like it nor did I shoot it. I shot it okay but it just it wasn't the gun I wanted and I, I finally decided I'd save my pennies up. I was going to purchase the gun I always wanted. I always enjoyed shooting. That was the Slime and Trade Rifle. And I went through a whole like escapade over the past few years of trying to figure out which sights I like shooting it. And for, for people who are a little bit older, maybe a little bit of uh, wisdom in their beards and in their hair, they, uh, they'll they laugh at me when I say that, while I I obviously I, I can and I know how to shoot open sights, it's not, like, it's not secondhand nature to me. Like, it, I I shoot them and I've shot them as a kid. I grew up shooting a twenty-two and a BB gun, open sights. But my guns that I shoot now, almost all of them, except for a shotgun, obviously, all of my my rifles, I have a scope on. And shooting with those sights, it's just. It's a mental blockade in that sight picture. So I was playing back and forth, and I I started off, I had a peep sight on my muzzleloader. And man, that, for me, personally, that was the best sight picture that I had on that gun. I shot it really accurately. Uh, First deer I shot at, you know, put it down quickly. Uh, Love the sight picture. Just everything about that was perfect for me, except... It is really, really hard to find a durable peep sight that is going to hold up in hunting situations in the place I want to take it. And unfortunately, I broke two peep sights off of my muzzle loader and I got sick and tired of it. So I put uh, Lyman, uh, the, the fold down rear sight and the, the white bead front sight, <clears throat> put that on my, uh, on my setup and really liked it the only problem I was running into was if I was shooting in any low light situations, I was having a hard time seeing that front sight. So obviously you just can't take those shots. And I had a a couple of opportunities where I, uh, I had two instances that I can vividly remember. One of them, uh, I forced a shot and it ended in a bad situation. I missed a deer and I was uh, concerned that I I hit the deer and wounded it, but I, I, I'm, pretty sure I confirmed it was a miss but it was a forced shot and it was a, a lesson learned and the, the second instance I elected to pass on the shot because I couldn't see my sights and shoot comfortably so I, I made a switch I kept the rear sight on my gun the, the flip down lineman but I put a fiber optic front bead sight on and uh, really like it so far I'm hoping to use it this season hopefully blast a deer with it, but we'll see. But anyway, uh, took me a bunch of shots to get it situated, and I went to make an adjustment and drop the set screw and had to had to hold the buckle, had to restart, so got a bunch of practice in, but I enjoy shooting the muzzleloader and uh, feeling good, so opening day we go out and make some pushes, and wouldn't you know, the guy that does not have a buck tag, me, I had two beautiful buck come 25 yards from me in this one push. Uh, One was probably 100 to 110 inch 8-pointer, really nice buck. The one behind it was definitely a 9-pointer. He might have been a 10-pointer, but he was easily in that 120-plus class. It was a really nice deer, really nice opportunity, one of those golden opportunities that if you wanted to shoot a buck with a muzzleloader, it would have been everything you dreamed for and I got to watch him go by and I was it was exciting and saw some other deer just no shot opportunities and that's been it so I'm hoping that this weekend over the new years um I'll be able to get out and I know the the final weekend we have a, a camp gathering got a couple guys getting together at camp making some last uh last hurrah drives and and some good camp camaraderie and fellowships i'm looking forward to that but we're it it always comes by way faster than it gets here guys and we're we're into the we're into the end of it Uh, especially for deer season but there's still some good opportunity there's a lot of trapping opportunity out there there's waterfowl seasons and there's also small game seasons and this week we're going to be talking about just that we're going to be talking about some of the small game hunting opportunity but we're mostly going to be talking about some of the science and information behind some of the small game species you don't typically hear about and one of those species would be snowshoe hare the appalachian cottontail the eastern fox squirrel yes those are all things that we're not too accustomed to talking about and uh, we're going to be talking. A little bit about a threat that poses on our rabbit population, our cottontails, our snowshoe hares, everything that we hold in the state, and that would be rabbit hemorrhagic disease, which uh, sounds uh, sounds. Exactly what it is. It's there's there's some similarities, and I'm not going to get into the details of it because our guest does a way better job of explaining it than I do. But there's uh, there's definitely some similarities in what you've heard of other hemorrhagic diseases, and uh, our our guest this week is Emily Boyd, the small mammal biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission, and this was a great opportunity. She is. Again, I feel like everybody I've had the fortune of talking to that works in our state agency is brilliant beyond their ears. They're 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 way smarter than the guy that's interviewing them, and I really enjoy getting everyone's perspective on there. And you know, every th- every single one of those state employees has the same thing in common. They are down-to-earth people. They love the outdoors. They love hunting, fishing, and trapping, and they're trying to do their job to the best of their ability to support conservation, hunting, trapping in the state of Pennsylvania. And you know, this conversation is no, but so it's it's definitely a little bit of uh, some science information too. But there's uh, there's some there's some things to keep uh, a lookout for, keep on the horizon as things like hemorrhagic disease in rabbits expands it's not a matter of if it comes it's a matter of when and what does that look like for the hunting community and we're going to be talking a little bit about some specific snowshoe hair stuff if you're listening to this episode talking about snowshoe hares, um, this episode drops on Friday and you've got Friday and Saturday yet if you wanted to go after snowshoe hare in Pennsylvania there's a week long season between Christmas and New Year's and uh, unique and unique unique hunting opportunity. Um, so hopefully this uh, this episode gets you fired up and, and you'll learn something new. And with that, hey, let's get to this episode. And if nothing else, have a happy new year, guys. Thanks again. All right, we are rolling. And this week I have another, another guest from the Pennsylvania Game Commission. And we are speaking with Emily Boyd. Emily, thank you so much for hopping on.
2: Thank you for having me. It's
1: yes, uh, kind of a unique turn of events. We did an episode with Thomas Keller uh, a couple weeks ago, and he put me in contact with you, and I thought the, the topic of interest was really, really Uh, unique, not something that a lot of people would get to hear about, but you've you've got some interesting things going on in your line of work that I think would be great for our listeners to hear about. So tell me a little bit about what you do, and uh, we'll go from there.
2: Absolutely. So I'm the small game mammal biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Um, Overall, it's rabbits and squirrels. Like everybody knows that we have rabbits and squirrels, right? But we actually have Within that group of species that we manage, we have snowshoe hares, which is a species of conservation and maintenance concern in Pennsylvania. We're on the southernmost edge of their distribution um, in the northeast. We also have two SGCM, which is species of conservation uh, need, um, identified on the state wildlife action plan. That would be the eastern fox squirrel and also the Appalachian cottontail. So, you know, rabbits and squirrels, everybody kind of knows and is very familiar. They're in their backyard. Um, sometimes they're causing nuisance issues, but we actually have some pretty critical um, conservation concerns associated with this group of species as well. So a lot of my time is spent with snowshoe hares, Appalachian cottontails, and those eastern fox squirrels.
1: And knowing that um, your line of work especially as we're approaching the busy season for you and stuff. I'm, I'm really appreciative that you, you took some time to talk about this. So um, it's it's kind of funny, Leo. There'll be some people who listen to this and have heard of an Appalachian cottontail. Then there's going to be other people that are like, well, how's that any different than a regular cottontail? So mm-hmm. p- please, please do elaborate.
2: Okay. Yeah. So in general, um, Appalachian cottontails actually go by a couple of different names uh, here. Uh, Woods, uh, um, hair um, blue bellies it's one of the one of the biggest concerns with them is just the general lack of knowledge Um, between eastern cottontails which is your backyard bunny and appalachian cottontail uh, appalachian cottontails are going to be more your big woods higher elevation um, different habitat needs than your eastern cottontail although we do find both species in the same location which was kind of a surprise as we started to look into and. find out more about the appalachian cottontail in general you know we've there's a long history of moving eastern cottontails around so uh, we've essentially created like a a frankenstein bunny in a way where (laughs) um in general though eastern cottontails will be bigger than your appalachian cottontails they'll have some different uh, behavior characteristics like i hear uh, houndsmen who, who use their dogs to pursue them that Appalachian cottontail is kind of more like a snowshoe hare where you have um, just the way that they run. They, they run in these big circles similar to a snowshoe hare rather than holding up like an eastern cottontail would. So um, there certainly are both cottontails, but uh, just some slight differences and then... Um, of course, through genetics as well, they're, they're different. There's been enough
1: separation there. Right. And we got, uh, you know, I just pulled up the, the small game seasons that we got going and we've had, uh, seasons varying for, for squirrels and rabbits, uh, you know, squirrels opened in September rabbits opened up, uh, around October 15th. And we've got, you know, seasons that are going up through, uh, today as we're, we're recording this, the 23rd is the, the last day and we always take a break for Christmas and we open right back up after, after Christmas, the day after on the 26th and then we go into february for small game but uh you you had you'd made mention of and i'd like to to dig into it a little bit is the the hair side of things is we have a, a short season after christmas only for for snowshoe rabbits and bearing hares and uh that that's a really unique opportunity and i really don't know a lot of people that take time there to go and chase hares it's it's a unique thing it's it's a yeah, it, it it is flat out unique that we have that opportunity. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, snowshoe hares just themselves are unique in a lot of ways. They're one of only about 20 species in the world that have that, um, uh, they've evolved to have a winter-based camouflage where they turn white in winter. Um, not a lot of species have that uh, trait. Um the season itself, it is short, and we know that there are um, not a lot of snowshoe hare hunters in Pennsylvania. Um, and it's actually one of the main concerns that we have associated with the species. We've always monitored uh, snowshoe hares in Pennsylvania through what's called the Game Take Survey. It's an annual survey sent out to our hunters statewide. Monitors, um, number of hunters participating in different, pursuing different species their days of field. Um, and the number that they harvest. And we look at that harvest per unit effort, so the number of animals harvested over the number of days that they spend, and kind of that gives us an indices to to monitor, like if they're having to spend more days of field to harvest the same number of animals, mm-hmm. it might indicate that there's fewer animals on the landscape potentially. But what we run into with hares is there's so few snowshoe hare hunters picked up by the survey that it's just we need a more fine... Uh, tuned tool to monitor that species and something that we've been working on this fall is putting together what's um, snowshoe hare cooperator group it's very similar maybe some of your listeners are part of the rough grouse cooperator group where we we ask these specific hunters that have volunteered for the we are open enrollment if any of your listeners are snowshoe hare hunters and would like to participate um, please have them reach out to the game commission but um, these hunters will be monitoring the number of hairs flushed and just kind of providing some more fine scale data that we need um, to more effectively monitor and manage uh, the snowshoe hare population in the state.
1: That's really unique so in um, give me let's back up just a second because there's there's a couple other points we want to touch base on but Um, let, let's go completely elementary 101 on snowshoe hares. Tell me a little bit about what are some of the differences that you, that, that there are between a snowshoe hare and a lot of the other common rabbit species that we're used to in our state, a little bit about their, their habitat, their, their, uh, their range, things like that, that most people are just clueless about.
2: Absolutely. So snowshoe hares are going to be bigger even than your cottontail species. Um, and, um, they're young. How they reproduce is different. So it's called precocial young. Snowshoe hair. Loverettes is a baby snowshoe hair. Um, they're born fully fur. Their eyes open very quickly after birth and they're like, they're ready to go. They're, they quickly grow and expand their home range and are not really super dependent on their mom uh, for care. Versus a cottontail young uh, kit would be, they're born basically naked. It takes a couple of days for their eyes and ears to open they have a lot more development um to to go through uh, after birth so that's definitely a big difference size is a big difference the fact that snowshoe hairs change to white in winter um whereas your cottontails will be brown uh throughout the year um and then you know snowshoe hares, their namesake is their from their feet really how big that hind foot is which was an uh, evolutionary advantage in periods of really deep snow. Uh, They're more easily able to maneuver through uh, snow to um, avoid predators. And, um, you know, similar species that we don't have here in Pennsylvania, but would be like the Canada Lynx, where they just have these huge paws that really help them to maneuver through snow. Um, That's that's why snowshoe hares have that big hind foot. As far as habitat goes, um, they're more northern populations, certainly are in like the boreal forest, mostly conifer. Whereas here in Pennsylvania, we just don't have a lot of that cover type. And where we find them is, I heard a, a biologist describe it last week as eye poking, eye poking habitat. So really stem, uh, dense, woody stems, basically uh, at or above your head height. You can't just walk through it you're kind of doing um fancy dance remover maneuvers to really get through it that that sounds like good hair habitat and it's something we're actually um actively involved in research to better identify what snowshoe hair habitat is not just like what is suitable though what is like optimal so can we um a critical thing for snowshoe hairs is this idea of mismatch now we have white snowshoe hairs in winter and not necessarily snow on the back, on, on the backdrop. So they're, they're sticking out like sore thumbs. And it's been shown in a couple studies that they actually have a disadvantage. They're more likely to get predated during periods of mismatch. Um, and with other research has found that habitat can actually impact that level of disadvantage hairs experience. So certain types of habitat can Allow even a hair, white hair on a brown background to not have a disadvantage of mismatch, which is very surprising. And it's something that we need to better understand in a state like Pennsylvania, where we just don't have that typical conifer type hair uh, habitat, really. And, um, you know, it's a great opportunity. There's been some research done on snowshoe hares uh, using that game take survey, where that survey has shown a contraction to the north of uh, the snowshoe hare population, higher elevation. We know that states to the south of us used to have hares. So they don't anymore. Um, there's real pocket populations left potentially in Virginia and West Virginia, but definitely uh, the species overall has contracted to the north. And, you know, that's something, there's always going to be a southern edge of things, but the more that we understand them here in Pennsylvania, the better we'll be able to manage for the species long-term um, as uh if that trend of northern contraction continues for sure um something so I, i'm that, curious I,
1: not to cut you off there i'm curious so you were talking about uh the the habitat that um you kind of see transition kind of like eye poking habitat so like the, the 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 first thing that comes to my mind because you know as a deer hunter in some of the places i hunt in northern pennsylvania we have a lot of. Um, heavily managed timbers and shelter cuts and, and stuff like that. So is, are, are those, it, to your knowledge, is that a benefit for snowshoe hares or is that just an inconclusive uh, thing at this moment?
2: Yeah, so especially tying into that disadvantage of mismatch, habitat management is the number one way that we, especially as a game commission, as a natural resource agency, can manage to benefit that's the species like a snowshoe hare. They really can benefit from these early successional habitats that we create through timber sales or um, timber cuts or uh, prescribed fire, other types of disturbance that we can introduce to the landscape um, and really increase that stem density regeneration that comes back. So, um, but something I just wanted to cover One last thing, as we started to look into Pennsylvania snowshoe hares, we found some fundamental differences in our snowshoe hares compared to more northern populations, which was really surprising. Our hares are larger than more northern population. It goes against what's called Bergman's rule, where in general, as you go north, as you go colder, the animals of the same species get bigger. That's not the case with snowshoe hares. We have bigger snowshoe hares here. We've also found some unique, they're called phenotypes, um, just physical characteristics of the, the hairs themselves. They're more brown. Um, their coats, uh, those guard hairs that turn white, transition to white, they are less dense. So inherently, our our native snowshoe hair is more brown. But also, to some extent, we're picking up these um, more, they have brown eye rings, brown ears, brown feet to some extent. And we've even documented um a small percentage of our hairs are fully brown in winter, which was a shock. Like we had no idea that we would have something like that here in Pennsylvania. And in fact, um, that detection of full brown winter hairs is one of only three populations in the the entire North America uh, where we're picking that up. So we're really interested to kind of get a better idea of that prevalence um, of those more unique brown traits in our hair. So we're looking at, can we identify that through genetics? Um, Before, I think we started recording, we started talking about some genetic analysis that we're running on fecal pellets. Uh, Rabbits and hares defecate at high rates, so they leave behind, they're cryptic in general, but they leave behind some good sign uh, that they were present and that's easy enough for us to go out, collect and analyze the DNA from. So um, we're using some cool novel approaches uh, to better understand our hairs in Pennsylvania, but it's yeah. an exciting time to work with the species. Sure. I
1: think that really transitions well into that next part because you know the 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 premise of what we wanted to talk about is some of the the research that you're currently working on and some of the the concerns that our listeners really don't have any idea the the, the potential concerns, but um, you know. You know knowledge is power in making management decisions and trying to, to better those, so I think now's a great time to transition into what does the what does the next few months look like um, in in your line of work to try and do, and, and what specific pieces of information are you looking for as you were hinting to in, uh, in your research?
2: Absolutely, so we have a couple actually different projects with grad students um, working on them. Um, and we'll be out during the winter be looking for fecal pellets because that's the time that the DNA retention in those pellets is the best. So that's when we're trying to get out there and collect some samples. Um, <clears throat> we have one project that is um, going to be um, a follow-up study to something that was done about 20 years ago where we're actually doing field-based um, assessment of the distribution of snowshoe hares in Pennsylvania to see... You know we have the game take survey data that's definitely valuable but we we have such low participation or it, it detects so few snowshoe hare hunters that we really need a different indices so we're using a field-based approach where we're getting out to uh, um, areas <clears throat> the same a similar approach was applied about 20 years ago across the northern tier of pennsylvania we're going to be looking can we detect snowshoe hares and has that air er- has those areas that we detect snow hair has changed in the last 20 years or so definitely um, pretty big critical question if we can it'd be great to tie in if we have enough success with that first year of that project we're going to try to pick out spots where where we retain them versus where we might have lost them um, also through the power of the genetics we'll be able to look at like how connected those populations are which is a critical um issue especially on the southern on the edge of a species distribution where you get into big concerns with fragmentation and especially in a state like pennsylvania where they're really sticking to our higher elevations we we have found snowshoe hares surprisingly in all three of uh, the game commission has three southern regions regions across the southern part of the state we have snowshoe hares documented in each of those regions we didn't know that we had that because the game take survey wasn't picking them up but through genetics we were able to detect them But in thinking about like, I'm from Harrisburg, I'm fairly familiar with the Ridge and Valley. If you wipe out snowshoe hare population connectivity on a ridge and you have a population to the south that that it can't really functionally um, spread genetics and you run into all kinds of population concerns when you get into a really isolated population, you're more vulnerable to disease, et cetera, et cetera, lower reproductive rates, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that's a, that'll be a really amazing project. And we'll also be uh, the second year that project, will be looking at like, what are the factors on the landscape that influence the connectivity of social hair populations? Um, how readily do they, in which different habitat types do they more easily disperse? For example, um, are, what level of roads are an effective barrier to genetic dispersal rivers. Um, So really valuable information coming out of that study. We have another study that's more broad uh, for lagomorphs. I'm gonna gonna slip into it, I can't help it, but it's basically rabbits and hares. And so that study is geared more, even more so towards Appalachian cottontails and looking at that species of greatest conservation need. And what are the, the response of that cottontail to the habitat management activities of, um, both the game commission, but DCNR, uh, private lands. It's looking at, uh, habitat management in general and the influence on cottontail, Appalachian cottontails. But we'll also pick up, we know to some extent, snowshoe hares, Appalachian cottontails, and Eastern cottontails can be detected in, in some areas, all three will be detected. In some areas, you only get easterns and snowshoe hares. In some areas, you only get appalachians and snowshoe hares. And we don't really understand what are the, yet, what the habitat types are that are kind of conducive to those different species being, uh, present in different areas. So that, and with that project, we're actually fine tuning some of our, um, genetic analysis processes to make it, uh, a cheaper um, way moving forward that we can continue to monitor and research uh, these species in Pennsylvania. So. Yeah, that, that's a pretty
1: quick overview. <laughs> it's, it's a quick overview. Um, there, there's a lot of information to digest, and and anybody who is not science minded, they're 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 probably like, "Oh my gosh, what in the world <laughs> is she saying?" And, and and trust me, I understand that. So the the one thing that I th- I think if if you would like to uh, is uh, kind of go into co- threats and concerns. Um, and, yeah. and, you had made mention of something that uh, our fellow deer hunters have probably heard about, and that's that's hemorrhagic disease. You know, a lot of deer hunters are familiar with uh, EHD epizootic hemorrhagic disease or blue tongue and stuff, and that's very common in the south and parts of the Midwest. And we've had cases in, in Pennsylvania here in recent years. Um, I believe of blue tongue but um, you know you talk about hemorrhagic disease and there's a great concern um, as you expressed with me before we got started here in in hairs which is mm-hmm. unique I'd never heard about and I'm kind of curious uh, what this leads to the potential threat and you know is there action to be uh, to be looked at prior to to hopefully mitigate this you know you know and I'll I'll, I'll let you go from there
2: absolutely thank you um so we do have, it's another, it's um, slightly different than that, that EHD, the blue tongue that you're talking about. We have rabbit hemorrhagic disease and rabbit hemorrhagic disease has been around for some time, but kind of similar to like the flu vaccine you might get in the every year. They kind of pick out different strains of that flu to put in the vaccine. I think they pick out the ones that are going to be most prevalent. There's this uh, strain of rhd rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus that has been shown to infect both domestic and wild uh, rabbits and hares and that is a critical concern and starting in around the time that covid took went crazy there was an outbreak of this new uh, not new but new to north america serotype um, type of that virus rhdv2 that uh, has effectively now spread from the Southwest part of North America, of the United States, throughout almost the entire Western part of North America into Canada, Mexico. It's actually now been declared endemic. The virus is not gonna go away. And why we're concerned about, it's not yet been detected in wild lagomorphs in Pennsylvania, but because it can go from domestics to wild, Uh, We're really concerned that we had a domestic detection actually in August of 2022 um, in Fayette County. And what this virus does is it has, uh, it can spread easily uh, directly from rabbit to hare or rabbit to rabbit, but also indirectly. You can, if a rabbit has urinated or defecated an area and your boots step on something that's contaminated with RHD, you can then spread it to new locations. Uh, same with cages. Um, it's not a zoonotic, so it wouldn't, like, if your dog picks up a rabbit that might have had it or something like that, it wouldn't spread to the dog, but the dog then has some of that contaminated virus on him or her and could spread it easily. And it has a shorting, so it spreads easily, uh, both directly and indirectly. It has a short incubation period, so within three to five days of infection, 70 to 80% of those individuals Uh, rabbits or hares that are infected with it will die. And so it certainly has dramatic population level impact potential. And we don't really understand, and it can go between domestic rabbit, your eastern cottontail, your snowshoe hare, and your Appalachian cottontail. All the rabbits and hares that are native to um, North America, uh, including Pennsylvania. So. It's going to be really nasty. And when you have uh, Appalachian cottontails, snowshoe hare, have pretty considerable conservation concerns already associated with them. Habitat suitability, connectivity, um, snowshoe hares have mismatched. Appalachian cottontails, there's potential that they might be hybridizing with eastern cottontails just because of how artificially the two species now overlap in the wild. And now we have this potential risk of disease uh, that has very dramatic population-level impacts um, that'll likely be associated with it.
1: If you don't mind, I wouldn't mind taking a step. And back. for now, it seems
2: like the West—it's—it's it's kind of stalled. So,
1: sure. Yeah, it, if uh, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind. Taking, you talked about um, threats to overall populations and we're, we're talking about um, RHD and I want to elaborate a little bit more on that but as hunters and sportsmen you know there's always a ton of concerns that that we have and some of them are valid and some of them are, probably misinterpreted in our in our sightings when we're out in the field and Mm -hmm. you know the the concerns of population you know i think about uh small game in general i've always heard this uh i've heard a lot of people uh make mention of the differences in predators um as far as having more predators now than we did 20 30 40 years ago um but you had made mention of, of habitat and our habitat is definitely way more segmented now than it ever has been across our landscape. <clears throat> and there's, there's probably a ton of other features. I'm like, so, so l- highlight some of those things that as a biologist, you real like are the main concerns as far as population dynamics and the species of hares across the state. Um, is there, are there things that we can be doing, uh, you know, about it or be concerned about as, uh, as, as hunters and, and sportsmen um, and, and which, which ones are out of our control and I, I think that kind of will tie into um, going back down the road of, of RHD and, and maybe the research and understanding of that, that potential threat that we
2: have. <clears throat> so okay so small game mammals in general they have this group of species has a high reproductive rate in in any given area and any given species that I've been talking about here today. But the survival rates of those young and that recruitment potential is directly impacted by habitat. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, that what I was talking about before where different habitat types actually influence that degree of disadvantage in a snowshoe hair and mismatch really speaks to that. It's not the abundance of predators, the types of predators, it's the habitat that influences their survival. So some of these like hares and cottontails, they're more into that really thick regeneration, so early successional habitat. A species like fox squirrels, um, they actually need the opposite. They need um, mass producing trees, oak, walnut, hickory, um, but with a relatively open understory. In fact, like Park like Woods where you just like want to take a stroll through the woods. You don't have to um, mess with laurel or anything really in the understory. Um, so it's almost like the opposite, but they're unique and without management um, can really, habitat management can really benefit Um, these different species so that I think habitat overall the main concern It's what we're I'm focused on and managing the species You know we have that you mentioned earlier about the cottontail and squirrel season their hunting seasons in Pennsylvania are some of our longest running seasons um, Not as concerned about human indoor, induced mortality Predator induced mortality. It's the habitat that we're really concerned with, with these species um, with a disease like rabbit hemorrhagic disease. I think we don't have it yet in our wild populations. When we do, it's going to be almost impossible to manage. Mm. I think that there's some best practices though, that, you know, certainly for giving outreach, sharing that this is a disease on the horizon. It's not really a question of if Pennsylvania will get it in our wild populations, it's a matter of when. That's either going to come naturally through the landscape or um, you know, I talked a little bit about how in the West, it's almost, it's endemic now to all Western states, effectively. There is these sparks coming out in our domestic populations. Um, just between August 2022 and September 2022, there were at least five states that had detections of this virus in domestic rabbits. Fortunately, it is not broken out into the wild populations. Uh, we hope to keep it that way, but definitely... The threat of that virus, it's, it's humans that are going to be moving it most, um, the greatest distance. So in the meantime, some best practices we can do is just think about how we're, if we're going, if we're bringing in materials um, potentially from an area that has RHD, so anywhere west. And that would be like, so this domestic rabbit facility was happened to bring in some alfalfa that uh, came from an area that had RHD. I don't know if that's exactly the pathway, but as a, a rabbit owner, you might just want to be thinking about or aware of what you're bringing into your rabbit facility. Reducing the contact, if you are a rabbit owner, between uh, your domestics, um, your population, and the wild, that certainly will have some level of impact on the the risk of disease spread. Um, just trying to separate, like, your dog in the, the crate from the rabbit that you harvest or washing things that you wear in the field, in the field, um, once we get RHD, like those kind of things to have in your back of your mind that can help to reduce the spread of the disease and the chance of introducing it into the wild populations. Because once we get it, it's going to go quick. Um, and just kind of start to think about those best practices in the meantime. We do actually have um, your listeners might be familiar with the CD chronic wasting disease disease management areas. Right. Once, once we had um, this detection in the domestic uh, rabbit population of RHD, uh, the Game Commission did initiate and develop the first RHD disease management area um, around that that uh, detected uh, population. So. Um, Fortunately, so far, it seems like that virus has not spread into the wild lagomorphs in that area, but within those RHD DMAs, um, we have certain restrictions on the movement of wild lagomorphs, certainly living, Um, and we also, even like exporting of rabbit meat is, you have a chance of spreading that virus, but it's very low, and if it's a hunter, they likely are going to be consuming that meat. Mm-hmm. So there's like an end point. It's not just going out onto the landscape.
1: So let's let's talk about that a little bit because, as you said, something like this is very, very hard to manage um, or have any kind of um, lasting impact. So it's it's almost a reactionary means because it's it's we're we're facing the inevitable so um let let's talk about it from the 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 angle of an outdoorsman and a hunter you know somebody who wants to be a small game hunter and you were you were touching base on some of the practices but like get when this inevitably happens whatever that timeline is what do you think are the best management and you like i said you you touched on these a little bit but maybe we could almost look at it from like a a beginning of a hunt to the end of the hunt um, and condense it, like what are going to be those best management practices for sportsmen to be aware of with with this moving forward? You know, you talked about transferring via boots, you talked about, um, you know, body parts and meat and stuff like that. So uh, how, how do you, in your eyes, how does that look?
2: So especially with the hunting um, uh, population, it would be, you know washing your clothes if you're in an area where we have an rhd dma washing your clothing it would be disinfecting your boots it'd be you know being aware of what you come into contact with and trying to like if you're field dressing a rabbit um i should mention that once rhd gets into the wild the likelihood of harvesting a hunter harvesting a cottontail with RHD is going to be low most likely because of how quickly or how short that incubation period is and it's I mean it's never recommended that hunters consume sick looking wildlife that's just um making sure that you know it hunters are cooking the meat to the appropriate temperatures these are all practices that are just good practice in general um, but with RHD, it's kind of expanded to trying to field dress on um, surfaces that can be easily cleaned so that you just reduce the risk of spreading that um, virus further. Um, if you are, um, when you field dress in a uh, cottontail and take it for consumption, reducing the presence of the cottontail parts on the landscape that might potentially further spread the virus. That's a good practice in general. So don't just like throw what you're not taking out onto the landscape, maybe bury it try to reduce or dispose of it into a commercial um, trash situation where that would end up in a a landfill and not have very low um, likelihood of coming back into contact with other rabbits or hares that might then contract the
1: virus. I I gotta go on a little bit of a tangent here because like everything you're talking about with rabbits is coming to my mind with with whitetails and and CWD and the situation that we're in right now. And I I gotta go on a little bit of a tangent because I know so many hunters that uh, kind of poo-poo the standardized procedures when hunting in those uh, disease management areas and how you're supposed to manage that. And, and then you know, whenever uh, you know someone like yourself or somebody in a state agency or a researcher is talking about what we do know about these diseases, and and these protocols are coming up with from from a hunter's point of view, they sound like that sounds ridiculous. That that sounds absurd. That's that's extra work. That's an extra headache. Blah blah. blah. And and people get really um, negative and 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 and. I, I've seen so many cases, and it, it's so prevalent with whitetails because it's such a, a a popular thing. But what I would like to emphasize is, um, while some of these measures may seem extreme to a hunter or a sportsman of some sort, um, it's it's what we know. It's 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 the it's the the most information that we have and when you have the best information you have that's what you make decisions on and it's it's a necessary evil to go through but it's for the greater good of wildlife like you're you're not imposing any kind of um changes because you want to you're you're doing it because you have a true concern over this wildlife matter and While this may be an extreme measure, it could be for the benefit long term of a population. And I want to just go on that real quick because we're talking about this with rabbits. Any kind of wildlife, you know, you as a... As the our biologist, you have the best interest for our hunters and our sportsmen in this state. So, first of all, my hats off to you and all the work you do and talking about this. But I, I say that to listeners who get a little bit blockheaded, and and you know I'm I'm guilty of it too. There's times where I I, I uh, as a as a hunter and you know just wanting to go 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 in my busy lifestyle, you know I I forget about stuff and I don't want to take these extra measures. But it's it's really really important, guys.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think um yeah we really have a you know as a hunter myself like the responsibility I feel like to try to promote these practices myself where like now where I hunt deer is in a DMA so that's affected like how we move parts of any deer that we harvest around it's it's not something to take lightly and i'll tell you in the in the forming of the rhd dma it wasn't something that we took lightly either it was very much like we do have ideally in a bubble like we wouldn't have any movement of carcasses because of how resilient the virus is in that tissue like it can stay on the environment for three months plus Mm. um so it's quite um uh, resilient, I'd say. But, you know, we want to promote our hunting heritage and knowing that our hunters that harvest a cottontail or hare, um, you know, is going to be that they're going to be consuming any meat that they uh, would be harvesting and just trying to make those tweaks of like disposing the parts in the trash instead of just putting them out back, you know, um, that'll really those type of practices will really make a difference in the at least as far as like humans are spreading uh, the de- disease.
1: Absolutely. So um, <clears throat> uh, unless you have anything else you would really, really like to share, on the matter of hemorrhagic disease and research you've got going on concerning these populations, I wouldn't mind picking your brain just about a little bit more general knowledge about snowshoe hares because this is a hunting show, and, of course, there's probably a lot of people that are listening that are like, I wouldn't even know where to begin, and I'd love to just pick your brain on little pieces of information to say, hey, if I wanted to go out on this extravagant adventure and try to find a snowshoe hare, where the heck would I even begin? <laughs>
2: Uh, look for areas where snow sticks around for quite some time and look for habitat that's so darn thick and over your head you don't want to walk through. Those are good starts. <laughs> um, and I know that's not very specific, but honestly, like if you can think about it, that's, that's most broadly how I'd direct anybody to start looking for snowshoe hair. It certainly is a heck of a lot more fun if you have a dog, um, to, to enjoy the chase with you. But as far as Um, site specific you know it is it is a species where we might be having a decline going on it's not like we have a specific uh, location to recommend or anything like that but to have in the back of your mind areas where snow sticks around for a long time high elevations go north and to look for those thickets that that would be your best bet.
1: Are there a lot more counties and, and wildlife management units with snowshoe hares than most people would realize?
2: Yes. Yes, we were definitely surprised um, by some of that that initial, just kind of shotgun approach that we were using to look for fecal pellet uh, DNA through and species identification through the lagomorph fecal pellets that we were collecting. Um, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we are looking into like how, how have those areas that social hearers occupied changed over the last twenty years? What are impacts on the landscape connectivity? And it's it's all stuff that we're going to be looking to better address through habitat management. Mm. Um, coming back full circle on that.
1: Really, really exciting. Um, yeah, Emily, I. I really appreciate this conversation, and I'd love to keep it going on any other topics that uh, you know you you, you think are uh, are good. I also like to keep in mind uh, your your time is valuable, and and I also know that when we talk scientific, that our listeners get a little bit little bit bugged. I try to zone it in as specific as possible for understanding. So, um, anything you you'd like to kind of roll with or leave us with?
2: Well, I'll just mention, you know, we talked a lot about the rabbits and hares um, today, but we do have this other fox squirrel subspecies in Pennsylvania. Historically, we had three fox squirrel subspecies that a marva fox squirrel has been extirpated for um, almost 100 years at this point. But we also have these other two subspecies. And one of those is on the state wildlife action plan as well. Um, we honestly, uh, it has been over 20 years since the last assessment of that uh, subspecies was done. So we're actively pursuing um, a better understanding of this eastern fox squirrel versus the western fox squirrel. The western fox squirrel is kind of like what what I think of as a fox squirrel. You have a nice rusty red underbelly. We also, uh, this, this more rare fox squirrel subspecies actually has a white underbelly. Um, and we just don't really have a good understanding of where we still have them in the state. And we're actively pursuing um, kind of initial steps to understand where, if we still have them in the state, where are they? And then we'll follow that up if we do have them with some more research into like habitat needs and how we can better manage the habitat there as well.
1: I guess I didn't even realize that there was that much of a, that there there, there was a difference and there was an eastern fox squirrel like i just think of the 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 giant um things that climb in trees and drive me nuts when i'm deer hunting being the the, yeah. the western <laughs> fox squirrel which we do have in pennsylvania in certain pockets yeah. i believe but um so, so eastern fox squirrel that would be something would, would you I, I wouldn't even know where we, is, it, is there a lot of similar similarities and size you said a white underbelly like that that's really unique
2: yeah, overall, I mean, they do have similar size um, between the two subspecies. And it, all we have really is anecdotal evidence that suggests that um, uh, that red belly subspecies, it's called Scirus niger uh, rufaveter, has been spreading eastward and into areas that were historically occupied by that eastern subspecies, um, which would be Scirus niger alpinus, if anybody wants bragging rights or to... Maybe I drop a little Latin on <laughs> on your listeners, but um, yeah, we we all we have uh, the biggest threat to some of these species are knowledge gaps. We 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 don't know, right. um, but we're working to find out some of those critical questions that'll lead us to better manage um, the entire group of small game mammals in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, knowledge is power, and I, I think hunters easily. Some of us can easily jump to conclusions. I mean, I think anybody who really has a passion for wildlife and hunting and spends a lot of the time in the outdoors, um, th- there's a, a lot of us get this uh, self entitled um, degree of knowledge and, and and have all the solutions based on that. And the, the fact of the matter is, um, the the while the, the experiences that you have in the field, we can't deny that you you're, you learn a lot about the wildlife, um, but you're usually our, our hunting areas and, and places that we go are such a small fraction of the landscape that it that encompasses the, the state borders, and making uh, accusations and, and major decisions based on those hunting observations are just inaccurate, and a lot of people really don't they don't realize the amount of time, manpower, and money that goes into trying to find out some of the things that you are working on as a researcher to have that better information. And again, my hat's off to, to everybody that works in the state and, and does this hard work, this research. It's a lot of groundwork. I mean, you're, you're probably going to be going pretty crazy here for the next few months in, uh, in mm-hmm. your field work. I mean, I'm just curious like what what is the average day during your busy season in the field look like from from the start to the end
2: well it depends a lot on the weather I'll say that (laughs) if you're digging out or can you find a place to park because the the plows if they've made it so you can't even get into a parking area or pull off safely on the side of the road and then you know, if there's snow on the ground, might be snowshoes uh, as far as you can. Certainly snowshoes aren't friendly for going through mountain laurel or yeah. <laughs> some of the habitats where we're serving. So um, can be super cold. Uh, who knows? <laughs> Pennsylvania winters are somewhat unpredictable, but um, it's certainly rewarding and I love being outside uh, in the woods in winter. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's it really varies a lot <laughs> based on the weather, but. But regardless, um, long
1: days and a lot of work.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'd say honestly, like becoming a biologist I never thought I'd work so much with scat, but you can sure learn a lot <laughs> about uh, species or.
1: Sounds like a shitty ordeal.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> That's another way to put it. For sure. <laughs> you know, I, I,
1: I realized, like, when I was going through uh, my undergrad stuff, I realized that while I, I have a love for wildlife, I have a, a passion for hunting and game species. I just realized that as I was going through it, a lot of the, the research, like, I, I just don't have the 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 patience or the mindset to do research work and and like having been at the forefront and seen it and done it to some very very small minute degree i just i have a ton more respect for those who do it on a regular basis because the uh the way that you know even talking with with tom and yourself and a lot of the other professionals that we've talked with um the way that your mind thinks outside the box over the matter it's just it's just a way that a a lot of um, personalities like myself don't think about, and I love to hear those approaches because it gives us a greater appreciation of the wildlife that we enjoy.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it, it's a it's a fun field for sure. It's challenging, um, but yeah, especially when you're walking through hair habitat, <laughs> uh, can be. Um, we have some sites that are in scrub oak, and some of those, yeah, I've never um, disliked. A habitat type <laughs> so much as some of the scrub oak stands that we've had to survey through but you make the most of it and it's certainly a worthwhile um, endeavor. Well, can, can you explain is- a little
1: bit more, like what that's like? Because in my mind, when you're talking about northern latitudes and the habitat types, like I, I've been on some some mountains with some extremely rugged and thick, nasty vegetation. Most of the time, that's mountain laurel and rhododendron. Um, I'm thinking mm-hmm. along the lines of of when I've done some bear hunting extravagance, and like I've been in some places where. I literally didn't know how I was going to get out at first. Like I'd stop and be like, where in the world am I going to go? So like, that's what I have in my mind. So you saying that a scrub oak is worse, that's unique to me.
2: <laughs> well, um, yeah, I'd, I'd put them kind of on par, I guess with Laurel. We certainly know that hares will use that stand type, but they'll um, preferentially they'll use more of the early successional once it gets to an appropriate height and before it goes to that, like, stem exclusion phase where it's kind of easier to walk through mm-hmm. if, if you know what i'm talking about but um yeah really thick laurel really thick rhododendron um depending on what else, like just how thick it is um and what food sources might be there there'd certainly potentially be you know a hair present in there we found them in more areas than we were thinking that we would but again um exactly like what what would be a population density in a cover type like that um, a stand type like that. That's Those are kind of more the questions that we're, we're looking to to answer with the work that we have going on.
1: Well, well, sure, and I guess one of the things that comes to my mind is like most popular, all, almost all populations of, of wildlife are, are clumped dispersal. There's not a lot of uniform dispersal across populations, and, you know, I, I run into situations, deer hunting, bear hunting, whatever, where, yeah, you, you go through um, – one force type to another and you, you'll find sign of animals and you know you were talking about laurel um rhododendron like some of those places you get into it's it's like a giant monoculture of it like it's so right it's thick it's cover but it doesn't really provide um like, like it's, a, it's a type of cover but there's other types of covers when you're talking about um, thick stemmy cover. That's, that's a little bit different side cover versus like the aerial overstory of mountain laurel and rhododendron. And like those those monocultures, like they don't, in my mind, they, I don't think they would provide a ton of food. So like, Well, an exa-
2: I kind of actually refer to some of those areas as like laurel deserts effectively because <laughs> it's just the laurel is so thick that it almost suppresses anything else um especially in a period like uh, winter where um, nutrition uh, needs are a lot more critical for various species you know uh, snowshoe hares cottontails they're going to be pretty generalist in what they're able to eat but as long as they can even find the girdle trees they'll mm-hmm. take the bark, bark off of young trees um, and that's their nutrition uh, for the winter but it, it 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 speaks a lot to like we're not the core area for snowshoe hares. we're not a boreal forest we have a lot more diverse habitat types in pennsylvania we have a lot more diverse predators uh, species um we have to better it it seems that that high woody stem density that structure whatever it's either early successional forest it could be some like willow stands nine bark really thicket wet areas as long as it has that really thick stem density at broad enough scales um, that's over your head, uh, kind of nine feet is kind of a critical cutoff point for the height of that vegetation. And, uh, you know, who knows what the population connectivity is, but that would be where I'd, you know, potential site for serving for snowshoe cares. Yeah. I would would think there has
1: to be a concentration potential too.
2: uh, Yeah. I mean, by the stem density you mean? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's for how I would describe it, just for the general public to find it approachable. It's so thick that you don't want to walk through it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, um, yeah. So just think like young aspen stands. Um, yeah, not fun to walk through. Type stands.
1: <laughs> I've been on plenty of cases of where doing deer drives over the year where we're walking through places and uh yeah there are places that we necessarily don't want to go through when you come through and we we look like we fought a, a wild cat or something um i yeah. we did some deer drives this year in some some thickets and i i had a group of people that i was the one that that was the the lead ringer of this whole escapade and they're going through and i'm like man these guys are going to be cussing me out to no end so <laughs> uh, when you're talking about this that's like hey that like i wonder if those areas have any signs of of snowshoe hares. Like it's just something that I wouldn't normally think about, but it interests me.
2: Yeah. 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 And it's definitely worthwhile. Like when we're talking about the, the science-based approach, we have like transects, kind of a uniform um, distance or time that we're surveying a stand. But without, I'll tell you what, without some of those transects that are almost the line uh, through a stand, some of those stands are so hateful that I wouldn't make it through if I didn't know that I had to make it to the other end for, the sake of the the study that we're completing so um it's definitely more than just a walk in the woods but
1: um exactly you gotta have some determination because i've hunted with people where like you you explain to them what we're gonna do and i have the mindset like i don't care i'm i'm in pursuit of this and this is what i want to do and there's people i have no stinking way i'm gonna do that so you know translate that into what you're doing for your line of work like you gotta have a Mental determination to do that because it is not a walk in the park. Like when you were researching any wildlife, you were in the thick of it.
2: You're in where they are, it's not, <laughs> not not where humans were designed to be. It's where the the hairs and cottontails were designed. To
1: be, so you betcha, Emily. Um, really uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate everything you had to share with us today. You're welcome back anytime. Um, Thank and, you. And Thanks so much
2: for the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. Um, hey, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.
2: Merry Christmas to you all as well.